Thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Catholic Truth Podcast, the place where we teach and preach the truth of Jesus Christ and his Catholic Church that has come down to us for 2,000 years. This is the place where you can know your faith, love your faith, and learn to live your faith and be transformed by it. And as you know, we do a lot of apologetics and evangelization on our channel. We help Catholics to defend their faith. And uh, from sometimes we have guests who speak on different topics and uh, are experts in their field. And today we are super excited to be having Michael Lofton joining us. He is a convert from the Eastern Orthodox Church to the Catholic Church. And uh, later in the show, he'll be sharing a little bit of his story. But he's going to be discussing today why Catholic versus Eastern Orthodox. They're very close. They're very similar uh, religions. But why Catholic? And Michael is a graduate of Christendom College. He received his master's degree there in theological studies. And he's currently working on his doctorate degree uh, in theology with Pontifex University and is writing a dissertation on the magisterium of the Catholic Church. You know, trivial lightweight stuff. And uh, Michael is the founder of St. Maximus, the Confessor Institute, and the Reason and Theology Show, and he has a great YouTube channel. I don't watch a lot of YouTube, but I have been binging a lot of his videos because I think they're great. And uh, he has been interviewed all around the country on Catholic Answers, EWTN, Sirius XM Satellite Radio, and he has a lot of great content, especially on topics that a lot of people do not address. So at the end of the uh, show, you can check out in the description section of this show, we're going to link his YouTube channel and a lot of uh, his books and his website and things like that. So I would love to welcome to the show, Michael Lofton. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Oh my gosh, it's a pleasure. Uh, this is such a great topic and kind of a feisty topic, you know, more and more and more. I have had uh, Eastern Orthodox coming on our uh YouTube channel and saying, not only, you know, they don't just say, hey, the Eastern Orthodox are correct, you should look into it. It's more like the Catholic Church is evil, the Pope is the Antichrist, you're all going to, (laughs) you know, and it it seems very combative. And I very rarely come across an Eastern Orthodox um, that's been civil and nice. And I'm sure there are countless, probably even the majority of them are, but online, they seem to be quite hostile. And so, you know, I was like, this is an important topic. And I think it really does come down to probably either the Eastern Orthodox are true or the Catholics are true. It's certainly not the Protestants. They were invented 1,500 years later by all different men who all contradict each other, who all have different theologies, even down to the core doctrines of what does the word faith mean? What does the word justification mean? They can't even agree among each other. So, you know, it really goes back to is it Catholic Church that's true or is it the Orthodox Church that's true? And a lot of people have asked us this question. So, you know, as a convert, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you were a Catholic, you converted to the Catholic Church, then you left the Catholic Church, and you became Eastern Orthodox, and then you came back to the Catholic Church. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's accurate. Would you mind sharing maybe a whirlwind uh, view of your story, uh, maybe a nutshell version of your story, where you came from, how you got to the Catholic Church, why you left the Catholic Church in the first place, and why you came back? Yeah, it's a, it's a really long story. I'll, I'll boil it down to just a quick summary. So, um, you know, I was born in the United States, but early on at the age of two, my, my parents moved uh, my sister and I to Israel. So we lived in Israel for a couple of years. My father was doing some Christian missionary work, but I, I didn't really know much about Christianity at the time, two to four years old. Right. So I didn't know a whole lot. 
Um, and then at the age of four, my mother divorced my father, brought us back to the United States and converted us to Judaism. And again, as a kid, you know, four to six, seven years old, I, I still don't know much about religion or Judaism or anything like that. Um, at the age of seven, she moved us back to Israel so that we could live in Israel as Jews. And we did that. And I nominally practiced Judaism as a kid. Again, I didn't understand the vast majority of what I was doing, but I mean, that's what I was told to do. So I did it. Now, around the age of 12, I returned back to the United States, but this time moved in with my father. And here I really had more of an exposure to Christianity at the age of 12. I started going to his church, which was a Trinitarian, non-denominational, charismatic church. And um, I was baptized at the age of 12. I made a profession of faith and I you know, accepted Christianity. Well, you know, as most people do in their teens, they, they start to go astray. And I did. Uh, so I really didn't live the Christian life uh, faithfully in my in my teens and start to get to, you know, 19, 20, 21. Um, around 19, I moved to New York City. And when I was in New York, I kind of hit rock bottom. There was just a lot of bad things that happened. And I was kind of ready to give up on life. But in God's providence, he brought uh, some people to me uh, that crossed my path and gave me a Bible. And I, was, I decided to read it. And I read it cover to cover in less than a month. And wow. it changed my life. It transformed wow. my life. I um, made a very radical change. Anyone who knew me, it was knew it was it was very noticeable how much I had changed. Um, I haven't been the same ever since, to be honest with you. I mean, there, there's something about God's scripture that could really change a person. Um, and so that kind of set me on the path uh, of uh, learning more about God and, and, and knowing who he is. And, um, you know, I, I, I got into some content that was pretty anti-Catholic early on and uh, moved back to Louisiana and uh, joined a Baptist church. And, you know, as, as a Baptist, I did some studying, but I didn't really do a whole lot of church history or anything like that. But when I had my daughter, I had to ask the question, okay, do I baptize her or not? So I had to look into the issue of infant baptism. And that led me to Presbyterianism, right? Because Baptists don't baptize their infants by definition. So um, I had to join a Presbyterian church in order to do that because I became convinced of infant baptism. And uh, around the Presbyterians, they were more, um, they had more of an emphasis on church history. So I started diving into it. And as I read the Church Fathers, um, and I had read the Church Fathers extensively, um, I, <laughs> I came to the point that I just had to say, okay, look, uh, I don't think that I can remain Presbyterian anymore. I don't believe that this is a communion with any kind of apostolic succession. Uh, so I, I don't think that it has any authority to speak on behalf of Christ. I don't think that is the church, it is the church that Christ established. Whatever good it has, it still has a whole great deal that it lacks. So I had to start considering churches that had apostolic succession, namely uh, Catholicism and Orthodoxy. So um, I considered the two, but I ended up choosing um, Catholicism because at the end of the day, I, I couldn't get over the fact that Eastern Orthodox just did not have a, a way to identify um, definitive decisions on matters of faith and morals. That They just simply did not have that, whereas the Catholics did. Um, so I, I joined the Catholic Church in 2012, but um, you know, I had a really rough time. There was a lot of stuff that happened uh, for about five years. Uh, it was it was pretty much a nightmare. A lot of things scandalized me. A lot of things that happened to 
my personal family, to my family members, to um, other people that I knew in the diocese, a lot of things that really, really scandalized me. And, you know, the claim that, well, this is still the, the Catholic church. It's the, it's the church established by Christ. After a while, that starts to run out of gas whenever you start to really experience major attacks on your family um, by people who are members of the Catholic church. You start to ask the question, well, did I make the right decision? Is this maybe God providentially telling me, hey, you, you, you've made the wrong decision here. You should have gone Eastern Orthodox. Um, things became practically intolerable to the point that it was nearly impossible for me to just continue to go um, to mass due to the things that had happened by local priests and things like that. So um, I just found myself at, at the point that I, I felt that, okay, well, maybe God is providentially telling me I need to consider Eastern Orthodoxy, which I did. And for about two years, I, I discerned Orthodoxy and eventually uh, joined it. And of course, as, as an Eastern Orthodox, I, I, I experienced some of the things that I had experienced as a Catholic, but on the whole, um, it, w- it wasn't as bad. I didn't, um, I didn't have the same issues on a local level that I had with, uh, you know, the Catholic Church. And so my experience with the Eastern Orthodox at, at the local level is actually relatively good. Um, I liked the parish. I liked the priest and 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 the people. Um, but at the end of the day, there was something that continued to tug on me, and that is, but objectively, is it true? Objectively, is this the church? Is this the fullness of the church established by Christ? And so I had to continue to study the issues objectively um, because I there was just something in me that just continued to say, you have to consider these issues objectively, right? Because you, you can't make decisions based on how you feel or what your experience is or emotions, things like that. That's wishy-washy. And, and there's really no objective way to identify truth with such things because a person could have a good experience in the Catholic Church and a bad experience with the Eastern Orthodox. That doesn't mean the Eastern Orthodox don't have the fullness of the faith and vice versa. So ultimately, I, I said, okay, there, there's going to have to be something objective that will allow me to remain Eastern Orthodox. Otherwise, I, I need to, um, I need to be reconciled to Rome. And for about three years, I, I you know, considered that. I considered, um, okay, well, what are the objective claims for Eastern Orthodoxy? I mean, I had already previously, for years, been studying this issue, but I, I especially. Uh, continue to do so as I felt that conviction. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I I came to the conclusion that the papacy and the Catholic magisterium is is objectively able to determine matters of faith and morals, whereas the Eastern Orthodox lack uh, such a mechanism. And in fact, some of their theologians openly admit that they lack this. They'll openly admit, yes, we do not have an objective mechanism to determine what is morally or by what is faith and morals, um, what is definitively true. They'll admit that. They'll say even an ecumenical council has to be judged through this process of reception and reception of the faithful. So in and of itself, it is not 
um, something that is going to require an irrevocable assent. It does not have that authority as to be received by the faithful. And then you can say after that, that, okay, yes, it had spoken the truth. And yes, it was guided by the Holy Spirit and its words. But you can only say that after you've had this period of reception. And the question is, reception by whom? <laughs> you know, there, there was quite a few churches that didn't receive the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, so who has to receive it is the first question. And then how long does this reception need to be? How long do we need before we know it's been properly received? There aren't any objective answers here, not, not any ones that are satisfactory. Um, whereas the Catholic Church does offer a definitive, well, a, uh, an objective answer here on how to determine what is an ecumenical council or what is a definitive statement. And it's especially in the papacy. Right. The papacy is able to ratify certain councils as ecumenical. And so that's how you identify what an ecumenical council is. And of course, the papacy is also able to definitively um, define or propose matters of faith and morals itself. Um, so there's an and there's an objective way to identify that those those kinds of ex cathedra statements. So I, I, I saw that and ultimately. Uh, the Second Vatican Council in Lumen Gentium, paragraph uh, 16, uh, that speaks about, um, I believe it's 16. Actually, I think it's uh, it's four, uh, 14, 15, or 16, right around there. It says, um, yeah, actually, it's 14. It says that one can't be saved if they know that the Catholic Church is established by Christ but refuse to enter or remain in it. And that part just continued to, you know, tug on me and and i and i felt that okay well um i i do need to be reconciled to rome because i do have somewhat of a partial break with it by going to the eastern orthodox who, who do lack a full unity um they, they do have a partial unity but they, there is something fundamentally that's lacking there on the universal level and that is communion with the papacy and so i i was reconciled to um the catholic church um I want to say it was uh, January of 2020, somewhere right around there, late 2019, early 2020, um, and entered back into the uh, communion with the Catholic Church. Well, welcome back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Glad and to you know, you. honestly, I, I don't feel that I that I lost anything. I I still feel in 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 many ways that I I'm Orthodox. Now I know a lot of Orthodox are going to say, "Oh, of course you're not Orthodox." Well, I understand what they mean, but. I still feel that I didn't lose anything when I, when I returned. I, I feel that I I only gained uh, unity with the papacy, um, and and in fact, we we have quite a few Catholics who fall under that description. They're called Eastern Catholics. They're they're Catholics who um, maintain the practices and disciplines and liturgy of the Eastern churches, but they're in communion with the Pope. Um, I don't think that they lack anything by being um oh. you know byzantine or something like that um I, they don't like anything at all um they have gained something by entering into communion uh with the catholic church so it, it's it's an odd kind of conversion or reversion however you want to put it because I, I don't feel that i had to really change anything um i i believe ultimately um I have everything that I had when I was an Orthodox in matters of faith and morals and the papacy. Yeah, it's all complete fulfillment now, the, everything that Christ wanted us to have. You know, and it's interesting, you know, one of the biggest uh, slurs that Eastern Orthodox, or just Orthodox in general love to give us along with Protestants is that, oh, well, you're a Roman Catholic. 
I'm like, well, you're assuming that I could be a Syrian Catholic, a Maronite Catholic, a Byzantine Catholic. You know, I could be, there are many, you know, rites within the Catholic Church, but we all make up the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And the Roman rite is only one of those rites. Um, you know, and so when you came back, you know, I'm guessing you're part of the Roman, right? But as you said, there's a lot of Eastern churches that are also part of the one holy Catholic church sure. that has been here for 2000 years. And I just find that interesting that people just assume that, oh, well, you're Rome, you know, you're Roman Catholic sure. when not necessarily. That's, that's very, very true. And, and yeah, I mean, since I was, uh, you've, since I was originally received into the Latin right, you know, when you return, you're, you're still Latin right. But in many ways, I, 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 I think and feel and, and live as an Eastern Catholic, but I technically am in the, the Latin right because I'm very, very Eastern in my um, uh, liturgical sensibilities and my spirituality. However, I'm, I'm pretty Latin in some cases when it comes to my theology. So I'm kind of a mix. Yeah, and I've been to Maronite um, masses and rites and retreats, and they have beautiful mass, and I love the Maronite rite, um, Byzantine as well. And uh, okay, so maybe you could start by just listing maybe the top three to five problems with the Orthodox Church um, and why the Catholic Church is correct. You know, believe it or not, I boiled down pretty much all of the criticisms against Eastern Orthodoxy to one issue. And that is authority. Now, of course, whenever we're speaking of the Eastern Orthodox, we could also say the same thing of the Oriental Orthodox churches as well, because often when we speak of, you know, Protestants and Catholics, we then speak of the Orthodox, but we automatically think of the Eastern Orthodox. Mm -hmm. I also want to point out, well, there's also the Oriental Orthodox that claim to be the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So we got to we got to factor them in. That's but true. My response um, to the question applies to the Oriental Orthodox as well. So. Um, even though I'm, I'm specifically talking about the Byzantine and uh, non-Byzantine Chalcedonian churches, the Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, you could take my response and also apply it to the Oriental Orthodox as well. And, and by extension, you could take the arguments that or the criticism that I'm going to offer about authority and even apply it to Protestantism. Um, so this is why I think actually the Catholic Church is unique. I think that it has a unique claim to authority. So you, we can speak about three to five different, you know, criticisms of orthodoxy, but ultimately they boil down to one, in my opinion, um, sure. and that is again authority. Because if we're going to discuss, okay, well, with some Eastern Orthodox, there's a difference, uh, maybe with the filioque, right? You know, that addition to the um, Nicene Creed that says um, that the uh, Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Some Eastern Orthodox are going to say that's illegal. The Pope can't add that to the creed. Only an ecumenical council could revise it. Or they will, and or I should say, they will also criticize the theology behind the idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there's one theological issue. We could speak of the filioque. We could even speak of uh, some Eastern Orthodox who deny the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary. And they, they don't believe that she was born in a state free from uh, original sin. And that's partly because they sometimes understand original sin a little differently than Catholics. All of this really depends on which Orthodox you're talking about, though. Some will accept the filioque theologically. Some will accept the Immaculate Conception. Some will understand original sin in the way that we understand it. Um, so it, it really depends on who we're talking about. Well, there's about three different issues right there. But ultimately, we can take those issues 
and boil down them down to one of authority. Because at the end of the day, we're going to be able to produce different patristic sources for our respective uh, traditions. So um, ultimately, there's going to have to be some kind of authority that is alive today that is able to arbitrate with these discussions and offer a authoritative and or definitive answer to these issues. So ultimately, my biggest criticism with Eastern Orthodoxy is it, in my opinion, lacks an objective authority that can arbitrate on matters of faith and morals. Now, we can go into that in more detail, but that's kind of how I would quickly summarize it. Sure. Uh, did you say some of the Orthodox don't accept the Immaculate Conception, meaning like some also do? Some do, uh, okay. but some don't. And, and I guess that comes down to what you're saying with authority is, like, you know, some do, some don't. Some believe this, some don't. From the outside looking in, it almost seems, and I don't want to insult them because I love my Eastern Orthodox and just Orthodox brothers and sisters in general, but it almost seems like Protestantism to me. I mean, they've already divided into different sects. They can't agree among each other. They disagree with the Catholic Church and protest the church, but then they quickly protest against each other too. And they don't really have that central teaching or central authority that you mentioned. Does that sound accurate? It's Protestantism with apostolic succession. Correct. So it's it's a bump up. It's it's a step up. There's a, there's a there's a plus there. Um, most Protestants don't have valid orders with apostolic succession. Um, However, the Eastern Orthodox and also the Oriental Orthodox churches do have valid orders in apostolic succession. They are true local churches. Um, and and there, there's a fundamental advantage there then between Eastern Orthodoxy and Protestantism. However, at the end of the day, if we're going to ask, okay, well, what exactly is the official Eastern Orthodox perspective on the Immaculate Conception? Well, there isn't one. Okay, well, how do we determine whether it's true or not. Uh, well, some will suggest an ecumenical council is able to um, arbitrate between these disputes. But then there's quite a few problems that we're going to run up against when it comes to Eastern Orthodoxy and ecumenical councils. Number one, um, what is an ecumenical council according to Eastern Orthodoxy? How do you identify what is an ecumenical council versus what is a fake council or maybe just a local council or a regional council or something like that. Um, and then number two, who gets to call the ecumenical council? In the first millennium, it was generally the emperor who called the ecumenical councils. Well, we don't have an emperor anymore. So what do we do now? This is why there's generally no um, unanimity here on who can call an ecumenical council. In fact, there's a major uh, schism going on right now in Eastern Orthodoxy between the Sea of Constantinople and the Sea of Moscow, and it's uh, you know affecting other seas in the Eastern Orthodox communion as well. And the issue really boils down to one of authority in Eastern Orthodoxy. What role of authority does the Patriarch of Constantinople have as first among equals? Does he have the authority to grant autocephaly? to the Ukrainian church? Does he have the authority to call an ecumenical council? These are issues that really are at the root of the current schism inside the Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, so it's a pretty big issue, and I would say it's one that has massive implications as we see today. There is a schism going on because there is not a consistent understanding of authority and primacy and councils in 
um, Eastern Orthodoxy. So we could compare that then to the Catholics, which I, I can go into details and explain how the Catholic Church has an objective answer to what is an ecumenical council. But I would simply say that um, if there is no objective and solid answer to what is an ecumenical council and how we can definitively settle matters of faith and morals in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, then really there is no answer to say um, to the question, how do we know whether or not the Immaculate Conception is Orthodox or heterodox? And that, that's a problem. So could you talk more a little bit more? You said you could talk a little bit more deeply about authority. And since that's the main issue, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the authority of why the Catholic Church has the true authority and maybe the problems, deeper problems with the Orthodox Church because of that lack of central authority. Let's start with the last part first, the, some of the deeper problems. One of, one of the ones that I mentioned is the schism right now between Moscow and Constantinople. And, and now it's expanded to Moscow and Alexandria. Um, now Moscow is saying that the Patriarch of Alexandria is in schism. And he's not just saying, oh, these people are in schism and we don't share in communion. That's bad enough. Um, what Moscow is now saying is that the clergy that belong to uh, the Patriarch of, of Constantinople and the clergy that belong to Alexandria, if they feel they're on the wrong side of things and they want to enter into, uh, you know, Moscow's uh, side of things, their clergy are eligible to leave uh, Constantinople or Alexandria and, uh, you know, enter on, into co communion and under the jurisdiction of Moscow. That's going to cause some major problems if there is a reunion between them, because it's kind of like you, you stole a whole bunch of my priests, <laughs> you know, and, and now we're going to come back into communion with each other. OK, are you going to give me my priests back? Are you going to give me my parishes back? You took all those from me. Um, so that's going to cause some some serious resentment, in my opinion. I don't know how that's going to be solved unless you have an ecumenical council. And in fact, there are Eastern Orthodox who are saying, look. The only way that this is going to be resolved is through uh, a universal council. The problem is they can't identify what one is. They recently tried to have what's called a great and holy council. They don't call it an ecumenical council because they don't have an emperor, but it's effectively the equivalent. They, they have been preparing this thing for over 100 years and finally got to have it in 2016. And guess what? Because of issues between Moscow and Constantinople, Moscow doesn't show up. And so... That led to a chain of events that eventually made the entire Great and Holy Council of 2016 a dud, and it just it belly flopped and it did nothing. Before and, you and, finish that, um, did did uh have the Orthodox churches have have they had any councils since they broke away from the Catholic Church in 1054? Yes, like ecumenical yes. worldwide councils. They won't call it ecumenical. Um, but there were, there are some councils that were local councils at Constantinople or Jerusalem and elsewhere that all of the patriarchs and bishops in the Orthodox church accept as authoritative. Um, the Senate of Jerusalem in 19, uh, okay. 1672 is an example. Uh, the Photian 
count um, not photian i'm sorry <laughs> the after photias uh the palamite councils would be another example um so they, they would say that well very technically they, these were local councils but they have been received by the orthodox church um <clears throat> as as universally applicable but then you'll get orthodox who then dispute okay well how much authority do they have because they're not called an ecumenical council. They're more called pan-Orthodox synods and things like that. So how much authority do they have? Well, now we find debates on that. Um, okay. For example, 1672 is, is disputed. And you, you, you point out some of the language about substitutionary atonement in Jerusalem 1672. And, they're, and some Orthodox are going to say, ah, but we don't have to accept that. And other Orthodox are going to say, but it's a pan-Orthodox synod. You have to accept it. So there's there's a dispute on how authoritative is a pan-Orthodox synod, uh, even though it was received by the patriarchs and the bishops at the time. Okay. Uh, so it, it, in other words, you don't have an objective way, really, to determine what is uh, you know a definitive decision on matters of faith and morals. Even if you were to say an ecumenical council or a, a pan-Orthodox synod or a great and holy council, you start asking questions, well, who gets to call one? How do you identify it? Um, things like that. That's when you start to find that there's there's a great deal of um, inconsistency and insufficiency in the answers. So it leads to problems like you see today um, between Moscow, Alexandria, Constantinople, um, <clears throat> with the issue of granting autocephaly and the issue of primacy and orthodoxy. Um, that's one huge issue. Uh, I think you asked some of the other uh, problems that it, that it had, or what, what was the first yeah, part? Yeah, some question? other issues with uh, with their authority or their division, um, you know, that they, yeah. or just theology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the the question, one, one question that is <clears throat> debated among Orthodox is um, artificial contraception, of course, right? Um, now, Catholics have a uh, objective answer to this in Humanae Vitae, um, and any Catholic who dissents from it is just that, in dissent. Um, whereas the Eastern Orthodox don't have a definitive statement on, um, on uh, our, the use of artificial contraception. So then how do you say that somebody is in dissent, right? Uh, how do you say somebody is wrong? Um, you, you could say, well, in my opinion, they're not in, in accord with scripture and tradition, or in the opinion of my patriarch, they're not in accord with scripture and tradition. But that will only get you so far. What happens when the next guy says, but my patriarch says it's okay in, in, under these conditions? Uh, and my conscience tells me it's okay under these conditions. Well, what do we do then, right? That the, the answer that my bishop allows it, or my patriarch allows it, or my synod has said this, that's not going to give us a definitive answer when another synod says something else. So that's one issue. Um, <clears throat> and I would say it's, it's a pretty big one, in fact. Um, now, of course, divorce and remarriage is, is another hot topic. It's another one. Uh, some are going to say that uh, the practices of the Orthodox today when it comes to Eastern, uh, I'm sorry, when it comes to divorce and remarriage, some Orthodox are going to say it's not following the canons. We've abused it. Whereas others are saying, no, it's it's in accord with the canons. We're not abusing it. And it all is based on how do we understand the concept of economia, uh, which is which is a concept in Eastern Orthodoxy that's 
not the same as a dispensation in in Catholicism, but it's similar. You know how you can be dispensed from certain uh, requirements in Catholicism. It's not exactly the same as a dispensation, but it's basically saying that, well, there is this rule, there is this canon, there's this law forbidding it, but um, out of grace, out of mercy, we're going to tolerate, we're going to allow a relaxing of the law in a particular case. That's economy. Sounds like a liberal kind of justification for it. You know, economy is a is a is a practice that's been around for a long time, but the problem is to apply it to uh, the case of divorce and remarriage in the way that it's done today, some would say is an abuse of economia. So, um, you know, now we have to ask the question, okay, well, how do we know what's an abuse of economia and how do we know what's the right use of it? And that's ultimately going to bring us back to the same question. Same question. That's why all of these issues that Catholics and Orthodox talk about, in my opinion, they're side issues. It all boils down to authority. It all boils down to ultimately the papacy. And unless we're discussing the papacy, we're discussing lesser matters that, yeah, they're important. We should hash out some of the details, but ultimately we're not going to come to a resolution unless we discuss papacy. So that's well, let's I do think. that then. Um, what Maybe you could, why is the Catholic church true then? You know, let's discuss the authority of the Catholic church, the authority of the papacy, and uh, why you think the church is true. You know, I recently did a presentation on the Sixth Ecumenical Council and uh, Pope Agatha there, his uh, letter to the emperor, which was read at the council. And um, it's interesting. The papal claims, the claims that Catholics make about the pope or that popes make about themselves, that it's a divine institution established by Christ, that the pope has authority to be able to decide matters of faith and morals, that the see of Rome is without error, it's indefectible, it's, 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 not, it's not able to defect from the faith as other uh, bishops are able to, that of course the bishop of Rome is the you, that there's a unique way in which he's the successor of St. Peter. And there, now, I mean, every bishop is a successor of St. Peter, but there's a unique sense in which the Bishop of Rome is a successor to St. Peter. These are what we call pap- the papal claims. And of course, also papal supremacy is, is another one that's part of the papal claims. And that's the idea that um, there, there is a supremacy of the Bishop of Rome over other bishops in other territories. Well, um, those are the papal claims, and it's interesting to note that in the first millennium, the papal claims were openly made, even at some of the ecumenical councils. Um, some of the papal claims were made at Ephesus in 431. Um, there's some strong papal claims being made at Chalcedon, and right after Chalcedon, uh, Pope Leo, before and after, is exercising um, clearly papal supremacy. Um, and you can see the papal claims um, going on with Pope Vigilius while the Fifth Council is assembled. At the Sixth Council, you see the papal claims, and we'll discuss that in more detail in just a second. And at the Seventh Ecumenical Council, you see very strong statements of the Pope making the papal claims to the Council. Um, so um, what we see here has many... Orthodox theologians have admitted in the first millennium, the popes and many Catholics were making papal claims, even openly at the ecumenical councils. I mean, they weren't present, but they had legates and things like that. Um, 
and the East seemingly accepted it to a degree or another. Now, of course, there, there's there, there's some more details that we could add there and um, more caveats, but on the whole, there there were quite a few in the East who seemed to accept it. For example, at uh, the Sixth Ecumenical Council, you have Pope Pope Agatho saying that the See of Rome has always remained unblemished and will remain so unto the end. So in other words, there is an infallibility uh, and an indefectibility to the Roman see. And you see um, the papal claims there being openly proclaimed by Pope Agatho at the ecumenical council and the fathers of the council praise his letter. They don't push back and say, ah, well, no, we, we accept this part where we reject that part. They openly praise his letter and they don't dispute it. And so if you don't dispute it, I mean, your silence is effectively tantamount to accepting something. If you're silence in the midst of heresy, you've accepted the heresy. I mean, that this is the standard of St. Maximus. He thinks that if you're silent about, you know, this issue of uh, Jesus having two wills, or if, if somebody were to come and say Jesus only has one will instead of two wills, which is the Orthodox view, Jesus only has one will. And you're silent. You're you're accepting the air. <laughs> you you can't be silent in the midst of heresy, right? You have to speak against it. Um, so the rule that you would see in the first millennium is, um, you, you you can't just be silent to heresy, and you can't give this tacit or I- I- implicit, I should say, approval uh, through your silence. So if the fathers at the Sixth Council rejected the papal claims, they should have said so instead of accepting his letter. And so this is what we see time after time again, the formula of Hermisdus that was required by the Eastern bishops to sign to come back into communion with Rome um, after the Council of Chalcedon. You, you have them signing off on a document that makes the same claims that Pope Pagatho makes. He makes the papal claims there, and they signed off on it and accepted it. Mm-hmm. So the point is, time after time, you see in the first millennium, popes and saints, and some of these popes are saints in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, Pope Agatho is a saint in Orthodoxy. Pope Leo is a saint in Orthodoxy. You see these popes openly proclaiming and making the papal claims, and the East sometimes gave pushback, but in many times accepted it. Um, so the problem then is, okay, well, if you can accept this in the first millennium, why, why can't you accept it now? Why is it heresy now? Um, and, and so I, th- I think that's a major advantage for the Catholics when it comes to the issues of authority, because again, the authority issue boils down to the papacy. And so if the papal claims are true, then the Catholics have an objective way to identify, matter, identify matters of faith and morals um, and, and their definitive settlement of faith and morals. And that would be objectively then superior when it comes to the issue of authority um, compared to the Orthodox. Now, if if we're wrong, right? If the papal claims are 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 false, then we don't have anything any better. Um, so it ultimately then boils down to the question of, well, the claims that many of these popes were making in the first millennium are they true or not? Um, and I would have to say, well. If the ecumenical councils <laughs> that we both agree are ecumenical councils, right? So I don't have to prove that these are ecumenical councils since we both agree that they're ecumenical councils. Um, since we both all agree that, for example, the Sixth Council is ecumenical, 
Well, if the Sixth Council is accepting the papal claims, I think that that weighs in favor of the Catholic claim. Absolutely. And I would even add to that, that uh, it seems with the exception, you know, a few exceptions that the constant tradition of the church seems to back this up as well with the early fathers, you know, back to really early times, you know, talking about the primacy of Rome, talking about the successor of Peter having a primacy over the other apostles and such. And it really wasn't harshly disputed, you know, for a long time. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Orthodox churches came back twice in history, right back into communion with the Catholic church. Is that right? And I believe if I'm not mistaken, I believe in around 1200, the, the Patriarch of Constantinople even knelt before the Pope and before coming back into communion with him. Is that, is that accurate? More than try more than twice. They've um, come back more than they, twice. Uh, they, and of course there hasn't been uniformity there. Um, there were some part, some some sees in the east that were in communion, and some that weren't, and some patriarchs that were in communion, and some that weren't. Um, so this I- idea that the east is this solidified monolith really isn't the case. There, there, it, it's been that it's been more the case that some were in communion, some were not. Many were not in communion. Then they become come into communion, and then uh, some leave, and some come back, and. Uh, it's it's really been all over the place um, since very early on in the first millennium. We've we've had these problems, right? Of of Eastern seas not accepting the papal claims, then accepting the papal claims, and then leaving and not accepting and then accepting them. Um, there was this back and forth going on. Ultimately, in my opinion, I think it really became solidified after the Council of Florence in the 1400s. I think that's when you really have the Eastern churches um, making it clear uh, that they are, they are no longer in communion with the Catholic church. Uh, now you, you still do have some indicators of that prior to Florence. Clearly uh, that's why they had the council of Florence because there was a separation, but I, I, I want to say after Florence, it becomes painfully clear. There is a major severance. Now, Oddly enough, though, even after Florence, after the 1400s, you still have some intercommunion going on between Catholics and Orthodox, especially in the East. On a local level, you still have some Catholic uh, priests celebrating Mass at a bishop, uh, Orthodox bishop's cathedral for Orthodox, giving Orthodox communion, hearing their confessions, preaching at their churches. And, and vice versa, you, you have this sharing of communion and sacred things and sacraments between Catholics and Orthodox kind of off and on um, at, at kind of a grass level, um, grassroots level um, until about 1750. You know, at 1750, that's when you really then at that point see a break and sharing of communion, even in these Eastern territories where there's no longer an Orthodox will ordain a Catholic or a Catholic would ordain an Orthodox bishop or something like that. Um, you, you have really a major severance then as far as sharing in sacred things. And so it wasn't until really the Second Vatican Council that that policy kind of reversed itself and there's starting to be a little bit more sharing in sacred things between Catholics and Orthodox again, which I think is a good thing. Indeed. Um, and, and so sometimes in limited cases, there's sharing of sacraments. Um, uh, 
So I, I think things are getting better. They're starting to heal, but there's so much baggage, yeah. 2000 years of baggage. It's just <laughs> so, amazing that the 1400s and the 1800s or late 1700s, it's really a late in life to be like, oh no, we're, we're definitively separate. You know, and to me, like one of the proofs uh, uh, from my, from my understanding, you know, one of the proofs of Catholicism is the fact that, you know, throughout history, um, you know, especially a couple major times, the Orthodox Church has ever turned to communion with the Catholic Church. But it's not like the other way around where the Catholic Church is like, oh, no, we're going to, you know, come back to the Patriarch of Constantinople. You know, it's always been them coming back to us, coming into communion. Oh, but we're leaving again. You know, oh, but we're coming back into communion. We're now leaving again. And uh, I've never really seen it that much in the same way the other way around because it can't be i mean the catholic church is the church that was established by christ with peter at the head you know the primacy and um even the early church fathers talk about his primacy and such and uh i just we know obviously we pray for the reunification of the churches and we want to see more and more people come back to the church um we, we see, pray for that the complex thing though is the Eastern Orthodox would say that it was Rome who left the one Correct. church. They would say that they are the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church of the Creed. And they would say Rome defected from the faith when it um, infected itself with the heresy of Pavism and Filioquism. Right. Um, and Azimes and the Eucharist and beards and whatever. Um, you know, <laughs> pre priests not having beards. Um, although that's not an issue anymore, right? But that was a pretty big deal uh, back in the day. Uh, I've even or, heard Orthodox priests saying that the filioque isn't really an issue anymore for a lot of Orthodox. It's, you know, I've heard some a lot. Orthodox would say that. And then some Orthodox would say that the Orthodox who say that are heretics. And so right, there's some right. major division there. Okay, well, what do Back we do to now? the point. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but they're going to say, but well, Rome was in and out of communion with us and we didn't come back to communion. You came into communion with us. And so now they would recognize in many cases uh, prior to papism even though the papal claims were being made prior to this, they would say prior to the schism, really, uh, the papal claims weren't being made. And um, there were cases where the Eastern uh, patriarchs were in various heresies and Rome had to remain faithful. And so, yes, the Eastern patriarchs came back into communion with Rome. They would recognize that and say that. But they would say after 1054, um, you know, the, the papal claims are made. And so that's when Rome left. And Obviously, this is overly simplistic, and, yeah. and it's much more complex than that. And the event of 1054 was not seen as the moment where East and West really split. Um, that's definitely not the case. Uh, I would say it was the Council of Florence where that happened, after the Council of Florence, I should say. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so what are some of... Uh, I guess, uh, do you want to talk about the filioque? Do you think that's necessary? Um, you know, because we keep bringing it up. People have a lot of questions on it. Um, you know, is that their biggest issue? Or is, I mean, obviously the papacy is probably the biggest issue. Um, but is the filioque probably the second biggest issue for them? Yeah, the papacy at this point is going to be the biggest issue. And then number two is going to be the filioque. Okay. Um, but, you know, the filioque for some people is no longer an issue because they would say, some Orthodox would say that the filioque is Orthodox theologically, but you should not add it to the creed. And Rome has already allowed Eastern churches in its communion 
to not say the filioque whenever they say the creed. Not that they're rejecting the doctrine, but just because that wasn't originally put in the creed and for the sake of of, the, of them, since they they maintain that they want to maintain that discipline of not adding to the creed, sure. Um, he 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 allows them to not say it as long as they recognize it's orthodoxy. Um, so those Eastern Orthodox would say, well, theologically it's orthodox, but you shouldn't add to the creed. That's not going to be an issue for them anymore, since Rome has already said, okay, well, the Eastern churches don't have to say the the creed with a filioque as long as they recognize its orthodoxy. So what's really left at this point? Um, ultimately, it's going to be the papacy, because all orthodox are going to agree that the papacy is a problem. All of them. Uh, it's not like the Immaculate Conception. Some Eastern Orthodox are okay with it, some aren't. No. All orthodox are reject papal infallibility. <laughs> there, there's no Eastern Orthodox, to my knowledge, that accepts papal infallibility. And there's no Eastern Orthodox, to my knowledge, that accepts uh, papal supremacy as defined by Vatican I. So those are the yeah. two issues, papal supremacy and papal infallibility. And really, the issue of papal infallibility um, is under papal supremacy. In fact, this was one of the um, ways that we, we came to uh, really explicitly um, began to speak about papal infallibility, especially in the Middle Ages, even though the concept was there in the first millennium. I spoke about Pope Agatha and Formula for Mises. Uh, but it really came to the forefront whenever they recognized much more clearly the Pope's supremacy. And they said, well, look, if he's supreme over the church um, on matters of faith and morals, then he can't definitively bind uh, the the church to err, therefore he has to have some capacity of infallibility. Again, supremacy and infall infallibility are there in the first millennium, but they, they begin to develop these things and it comes to the forefront and becomes much more explicit. And so the reasoning there for papal infallibility ultimately rests on the claim of papal supremacy. So in my opinion, <laughs> everything all boils down to papal supremacy. It, what it about all boils down to that. And what about the Orthodox who admit that? You said a lot of Orthodox scholars admit that, you know, they understand the papal supremacy in the first, you know, millennium, and then they, they can admit that. But how do they deal with that? Or what would their objections to this be? Some would say that, okay, yeah, the papal claims were made in the first millennium, um, but the Orthodox didn't really accept it. They may have just, uh, you know, seemingly accepted it and tolerated it because they needed Rome for political reasons, or, uh, you know, whenever some in the East speak of the Pope as supreme, this is just Byzantine flattery, and it's just the way they spoke, they didn't really believe it, and um, so th there's, there's things like that that you hear, in my opinion, none of them are entirely convincing, there might be a grain of truth to them, uh, but they don't explain all of the data. <laughs> That all of the data doesn't go away with all of those um, explanations. Um, so I haven't seen anything satisfactory, which is why I don't maintain the Eastern Orthodox position on on rejecting uh, papal supremacy. Yeah. Um, I don't accept that. I, and I would say, actually, if you if you want to be uh, faithful to your tradition in the East? You want to be faithful to orthodoxy? Accept papal supremacy. You'll be faithful to orthodoxy when you do <laughs> Because orthodoxy, one of the things I had to do when I was received into orthodoxy was accept everything that the seven councils teach. 
had to make a profession of faith on that. Mm. Um, and I, I took that serious. So when I started reading Ephesus and Chalcedon and the Sixth Council making these claims about the papacy, I took that seriously. Okay, well, I, I made a profession of faith that I'm going to hold to this. And here they're maintaining the papal claims. So I think that, you know, if we're going to be consistent, uh, we need to accept, of course, um, we need to accept the papacy. Now, of course, again, they're, they're going to try to respond and say, well, no, uh, we do accept the, the seven at councils. You're just misunderstanding them. But I haven't seen any satisfactory answers here. Fair enough. I just looked at the time and wow, it flew. <laughs> yeah. It's flew like, wow. I want to do a, I would love to do a whole show on Vatican II and, you know, their problems with Vatican II or people's problems with Vatican II, even though most people don't understand Vatican II. And I've not even read Vatican II. Maybe we can have a whole show on Vatican II if you'd be down for that. <laughs> be fun. Same. Another one you mentioned was, you know, the changes to the liturgy and things like that. It's also another one. Um, mm -hmm. And meme theology is not going to be adequate to really sufficiently grapple these these issues. You're going to have to get your hands dirty and really dig deep and look um look into things extensively and i think ultimately at the end of the day um the the catholic church and its its position is still vindicated uh it's not the case that the the, the sea of rome has defected from the faith uh due to vatican ii or traditionis right. yeah. custodis or the new mass or anything like that yeah no not even close and and a lot of people have questions on that so maybe we'll cover a whole show on that because it's important sure. and people yeah. need to know um, but thank you so much for joining us today. I honestly could talk for like three hours just on this topic. It's so interesting and there's so much to talk about, but I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Do you want to tell our viewers where they can find you? Yeah, yeah. Again, thanks for having me on. It's um, reasonandtheology.com is the website, or you can just go to YouTube and type in Reason and Theology and uh, you'll see the show pop up if you want to subscribe to the channel there. I'd appreciate it. Yeah, definitely check out his cha uh, channel, people, especially if you have questions on Vatican II, Orthodoxy, and Radical Traditionalism, um, you know, Sede Vacantism and things like that. Uh, he has a lot of great information. He gives a lot of sources. Uh, he quotes a lot. So it's not just his opinion. You know, it's the, it's the tradition of the church that he presents, and I appreciate that. And I want to thank all of you for watching and or listening to this podcast slash YouTube video. And uh, I want to thank you for all of your support that you give us. We would love for you to check out down below all of Michael's information and also check out our Facebook. If you haven't followed us, do so already. Follow us on Instagram, Pinterest, TikTok, and other avenues as well. And if you can support our ministry so we can help save souls and change lives, we would be eternally grateful. Thank you so much for watching. Keep praying for us and please keep praying for our ministry. Keep praying to the souls we minister to because this world needs it. And we are always praying for you. Thanks a lot and God bless you.